Welcome back. So we're into part two of the plague. Uh, it's a, I believe it's a three-part um, novel. So we're about a third of the way through here. Um, eh, not quite a third of the way through as we're going. So here we go. From now on, it can be said that plague was the concern of all of us. Hitherto, surprised as he may have been by the strange things happening around him, each individual citizen had gone about his business as usual, so far as this was possible. And no doubt he would have continued doing so. But once the town gates were shut, every one of us realized that all the narrator included were, so to speak, in the same boat, and each one of each would have to adapt himself to the new conditions of life. Thus, for example, a feeling of normally as an individual as the ache of separation from those loved ones suddenly became a feeling in which all shared alike, and, together with fear, the greatest affliction of the long period of exile that lay ahead. One of the most striking consequences of the closing of the gates was, in fact, the sudden deprivation befalling people who were completely unprepared for it. Mothers and children, lovers, husbands, and wives, who had a few days previously taken it for granted that their party would be a short one, who had kissed one another goodbye on the platform and exchanged a few trivial remarks, sure as they were of seeing one another again after a few days, or at most a few weeks, duped by our blind human faith in the near future, and little, if at all, diverted from their normal interests by this leaving. All these people found themselves without the least, without the least warning, hopelessly cut off, preventing from seeing one another again, or even communicating with one another. For actually, the closing of the gates took place some hours before the official order was made known to the public, and naturally enough, it was impossible to take individual cases of hardship into account. It might indeed be said that the first effect of this brutal visitation was to compel our townspeople to act as if they had no feelings as individuals. During the first part of the day, on which the prohibition to leave the town came into force, the prefect's office was besieged by a crowd of applicants, advancing pleas of equal cognancy, but equally impossible to take into consideration. Indeed, it needed several days for us to realize that we were completely cornered, that words like special arrangements, favor, and priority had lost all effective meaning. Even the small satisfaction of writing letters was denied to us. It came to this. Not only had the town ceased to be in touch with the rest of the world by normal means of communication, but also, according to a second notification, all correspondence was forbidden. To obviate the risk of letting let, of letters carrying infection outside the town. In the early days, a favored few managed to persuade the sentries of the gates to allow them to get messages through to the outside world, but that was only at the beginning of the epidemic, when the sentries found it natural to obey their feelings of humanity. Later on, when these same sentries had, had had the gravity of the situation drummed into them, they flatly refused to take the responsibilities, whose possible after-effects they could not foresee. At first, telephone calls to other towns were allowed, but this led to such crowding of the telephone booths and delays on the lines that for some days they were also prohibited, and thereafter limited to what were called urgent cases, such as deaths, marriages, and births. So we had to fall back on telegrams, People linked together by friendship, affection, or physical love found themselves reduced to hunting for tokens of their past communion within the compass of a ten-word telegram. And since, in practice, the phrases one can use in a telegram are quickly exhausted, long lives passed side by side, or passionate yearnings soon declined to the exchange of trite formulas as, am well, always thinking of you, love. Some few of us, however, persisted in writing letters, and gave much time to hatching plans for corresponding with the outside world, but almost always these plans came to nothing. 
Even on the rare occasions when they succeeded, we could not know this, since we received no answer. For weeks on end, we were reduced to studying the same letter over and over, again recopying the same scraps of news and the same personal appeals, with the result that after a certain time, the living words into which we had has it were transferred our heart's blood were draining of any meaning. Thereafter, we went on copying them mechanically, trying though through the dead phrases to convey some notion of our ideal. And in the long run, to these sterile, reiterated monologues, these feudal colloquies with, with a blank wall, even the banal, banal formulas of a telegram came to seem preferable. Also, after some days, when it was clear that no one had the least hope of being able to leave our town, inquiries began to be made whether the return of people who had gone away before the outbreak would be permitted. After some days' consideration of the matter, the authorities replied affirmatively. They pointed out, however, that in no case would persons who returned be allowed to leave the town again. Once here, they would have to stay, whatever happened. Some families, actually very few, refused to take the position seriously, and in their eagerness to have the absent members of their family with them again cast prunes to the wind and wired to them to take the opportunity of returning. But very soon, those who were prisoners of the plague realized the terrible danger to which this would expose their relatives, and sadly resigned themselves to their absence. At the height of the epidemic, we saw only one case in which natural emotions overcame the fear of death in a particularly painful form. It was not, as might be expected, the case of two young people whose passion made them yearn for each other's nearness at whatever cost of pain. The two were old Dr. Castell and his wife. They'd been married for many years. Madame Costell had gone on a visit to a neighboring town some days before the epidemic started. They weren't one of those exemplary married couples of the Darby and Joan pattern. On the contrary, the narrator has grounds for saying that, in all probability, neither partner felt quite sure this marriage was all that could have been desired. But this ruthless, protracted separation enabled them to realize that they could not live apart. In the sudden glow of this discovery, the risk of the plague seemed insignificant. That was an exception. For most people, it was obvious that the separation must last until the end of the epidemic. For every one of us, the ruling emotion of his life, which he had imagined he knew through and through, the people of Iran, as Eben said, had simple passions, took on a new aspect. Husbands who had had complete faith in their wives found to their surprise that they were jealous, and lovers had the same experience. Men who had pictured themselves at Don Juan's became models of fidelity, Sons who had lived beside their mothers hardly given a glance fell to picturing with poignant regret each wrinkle in the absent face that memory cast upon the screen. This drastic, clean-cut deprivation in our complete ignorance of what the future held in store had taken us unawares. We were unable to react against the mute appeal of presencers, still so near and already so far, which haunted us day long. In fact, our suffering was twofold, our own to start with and then the imagined suffering of the absent, one, son, mother, wife, or mistress. Under other circumstances, our townfolk would probably have found an outlet in increased activity, a more sociable life, but the plague forced inactivity on them, limiting their movements to the same dull round inside the town and throwing them day after day on the elusive solace of their memories. For in their aimless walks, they kept on coming back to the same streets and usually, owing to the smallness of the town, these were the streets in which, in happier days, they had walked with those that were now absent. Thus, the first thing the plague brought to our town was exile. And the narrator is convinced that he can set down here, as holding good for all, the feeling he personally had to which, he, to which many of his friends confessed. 
It was undoubtedly the feeling of exile, that sensation of a void within which never left us, that irrational longing to hark back to the past or else to speed up the march of time in those keen shafts of memory that stung like fire. Sometimes we toy with our imagination, composing ourselves to wait for a ring of the bell announcing somebody's return, or for the sound of the familiar footsteps on the stairs, but that we might deliberately stay at home at the hour when the traveler coming by the evening train would normally have arrived, and though we might contrive to forget for the moment that no trains were running, that game of make-believe, for obvious reasons, could not last. Always a moment came when he had to face the fact that no trains were coming in. We realized that the separation was destined to continue. We had no choice but to come to terms with the days ahead. In short, we returned to our prison house. We had nothing left us but the past. And even if some were tempted to live in the future, they had speedily to abandon the idea. Anyhow, as soon as it could be once they felt the wounds that the imagination flicks on those who yield themselves to it. It is noteworthy that our townspeople very quickly detest, desisted, even in public, from the habit one might have expected them to form, that of trying to figure out the probable duration of their exile. The reason was this. When the most pessimistic had fixed it at, say, six months, when they had drunk and advanced the dregs of bitterness of those six black months and painfully screwed up their courage to the sticking place, straining all their remaining energy to endure valiantly the long ordeal of all those weeks and days. When they had done this, some friend they met, an article in the newspaper, a vague suspicion, or a flash of foresight which suggests that, after all, there was no reason why the epidemic shouldn't last more than six months. Why not a year, or even more? At such moments, the collapse of their courage, willpower, and endurance was so abrupt that they felt they could never drag themselves out of the pit of despond into which they had fallen. Therefore, they forced themselves never to think about the problematic day of escape, to cease looking to the future, and always to keep, so to speak, their eyes fixed on the ground at their feet. But naturally enough, this prudence, this habit of fainting with their predicament and refusing to put up a fight was ill-rewarded. For, while averting the revulsion which they found it so unbearable, they also deprived themselves of those redeeming moments, frequent enough when all was told, when by conjuring up pictures of a reunion to be, they could forget about the plague. Thus, in the middle course, between those heights and depths, they had drifted through life rather than lived, the prey of the aimless days and sterile memories, like wandering shadows that could have acquired substance only by consenting to root themselves in the solid earth of their distress. Thus, too, they came to know the incorrigible sorrow of all prisoners and exiles, which is to live in company with a memory that serves no purpose. Even the past, of which they thought incessantly, had a savor only of regret, for they wished to add to it all that they regretted having left undone, while they might yet have done it, with the man or woman whose return they now awaited. Just as in all the activities, even the relatively happy ones of their life as prisoners, they kept vainly trying to include the absent one. And thus there was always something missing in their lives. Hostile to the past, impatient of the present, and cheated of the future, we were much like those whose men's justice or hatred forces to live behind prison bars. Thus the only way of escaping from that intolerable leisure was to set the trains running again in one's imagination and filling the silence with the fancied tinkle of a doorbell and practice obstinately mute. Still, if it was an exile, it was, for most of us, exile in one's own home. And though the narrator experienced only the common form of exile, he cannot forget those who, like Rambert, the journalist, and the good many others, had come to endure an aggravated deprivation since being travelers caught by the plague 
had forced a stay where they were cut off both from person with whom they wanted to be and from their homes as well. In general, the exile were most exiled, since when a time gave rise for them, for all of us, to the suffering appropriate to it, there was also from, for them the space factor. They were obsessed by it, and at every moment knocked their heads against the walls of this huge alien lazar house, secluding them from their lost homes. These are the people, no doubt, whom often saw wandering forlornly in the dusty town at all hours of the day, silently invoking nightfalls, known to them alone the day springs of their happier land, and they fed their despondency with fleeting intimations, messages as disconcerting as the flight of swallows, a dewfall at sundown, and those queer glints the sun sometimes dapples on empty streets. As for that outside world, which can off, always offer an escape from everything, they shut their eyes to it, bent as they were on cherishing the all-too-real phantoms of their imaginations and conjuring up with all their pictures of land where a special play of light, two or three hills, a favorite tree, a woman's smile composed for them, a world that nothing could replace. To come at last, and more specifically to the case of part lovers who present the greatest interest and of whom the narrator is perhaps better qualified to speak, their minds were the prey of different emotions, notably remorse. For their present position enabled them to take stock of their feelings with a sort of feverish objectivity, and in these conditions it was a rare for them not to detect their own shortcomings. What first brought these home to them was the trouble they experienced in summoning up any clear picture what the absent one was doing. They came to deplore their ignorance of the way in which the, that person used to spend his or her days, and reproached themselves for having troubled too little about this in the past, and for having affected to think that, for a lover, the occupations of a loved one, when they are not together, could be a matter of indifference and not a source of joy. Once it had been brought home to them, they could retrace the course of their love and see where it had fallen short. In normal times, all of us know, whether consciously or not, that there is no love which can't be bettered. Nevertheless, we reconcile ourselves more or less easily to the fact that ours has never risen above the average. Memory is less disposed to compromise. In a very definite way, this misfortune which had come from outside and befallen the whole town did more than inflict on us an unmerited distress to which we thought we might be indignant. It also incited us to create our own suffering and thus to accept frustration as a natural state. This was one of the tricks the pestilence had diverting attention and confounding issues. Thus, each of us had to be content to live only for the day, alone under the vast indifference of the sky. This sense of being abandoned, which might in time have given characters a finer temper, began, however, by sapping them to the point of futility. For instance, some of our fellow citizens became subject to the curious kinds of servitude which put them at the mercy of the sun and the rain. Looking at them, you had the impression that for the first time in their lives, they were becoming, as some would say, weather conscious. A burst of sunshine was enough to make them seem delighted with the world, while rainy days gave a dark cast to their faces and their mood. A few weeks before, they had been the free of this absurd subservience to the weather, because they had not to face life alone. The person they were living with held, to some extent, the foreground of their little world. But from now on, it was different. They seemed to be at the mercy of the sky's caprices. In other words, suffered and hoped irrationally. Moreover, this extremity of solitude, none could count on any help from his neighbor. Each had to bear the load of the troubles alone. 
If by some chance one of us tried to unburden himself or to say something about his feelings, the reply he got, whatever it might be, usually blurred him, and then it dawned on him that he and the man with him weren't talking about the same thing. For while he himself spoke from the depths of the long days of brooding upon his personal distress, and the image that he tried to impart had been slowly shaped and proved in the fires of passion and regret, this meant nothing to the man who he was speaking, who pictured a conventional emotion, a grief that is traded on the marketplace, mass-produced. Whether friendly or hostile, the reply always missed fire, and the attempt to communicate had to be given up. This was true of those, at least, for whom silence was unbearable, and since the others could not find the truly expressive word, they resigned themselves to using the current coin of language, the commonplaces of plain narrative, of anecdote, and their daily paper. So, in these cases, too, even as a serious grief had to make do, with set phrases of ordinary conversation. Only on these terms could the prisoners of the plague ensure the sympathy of their concierge in the interest of the other hearers. Nevertheless, and this point is most important, however bitter their distress and however heavy their hearts, for all their emptiness, it can be truly said of these exiles that, that in the early period of the plague they could account themselves privileged. For at the precise moment when the residents of the town began to panic, their thoughts were wholly fixed on the person whom they longed to meet again. The egoism of love made them immune to the general distress, and if they thought of the plague, it was only insofar it might threaten to make their separation eternal. Thus, in the very heart of the epidemic, they maintained a saving indifference, which one was tempted to take for composure. The despair saved them from panic. Thus, their misfortune had a good side. For instance, if it happened that one of them was carried off by the disease, it was almost always without his having had time to realize it. Snatched subtly from his long, silent communion with a wraith of memory, he was plugged straight away in the densest silence of all. He had no time for anything. While our townspeople were trying to come to terms with the sudden isolation, the plague was posting sentries at the gates and turning away ships bound for Iran. No vehicle had entered the town since the gates were closed. From that day onwards, one had the impression that all cars were moving in circles. The harbor, too, presented a strange appearance to those who looked down on it from the top of the boulevards. The commercial activity that hitherto made it one of the chief ports on the coast had ceased abruptly. Only a few ships, detained in quarantine, were anchored in the bay. But the gaunt, idle cranes and the wharves, tip carts lying on their sides, neglected heaps of stacks and barrels, all testified that commerce, too, had died of plague. In spite of such unusual sights, our townsfolk apparently found it hard to grasp what was happening to them. There were feelings all could share, such as fear and separation, but personal interests, too, continued to occupy the foreground of their thoughts. Nobody as yet had really acknowledged to himself what the disease connoted. Most people were chiefly aware of what ruffled the normal tenor of their lives or affected their interests. They were worried and irritated, but these are not feelings with which to confront the plague. Their first reaction, for instance, was to abuse the authorities. The prefects repost to courier systems echoed by the press. Could not the regulations be modified and made less stringent? Was somewhat unexpected. Hitherto, neither the newspapers nor the Ronsdok Information Bureau had been given any official statistics relating to the epidemic. Now the prefects supplied them daily to the Bureau, with the request that they could be broadcast once a week. In this, too, the reaction of the public was slower than might have been expected. Thus the bare statement that 302 deaths had taken place in the third week of the plague failed to strike their imagination. For one thing, all 302 deaths might not have been due to plague. Also, no one in town had any idea of the average weekly death rate in ordinary times. 
The population of the town was about 200,000. There was no knowing if the present death rate were really so abnormal. This is, in fact, the kind of statistics nobody really troubles much about, notwithstanding that its interest is obvious. The public lacked, in short, standards of comparison. It was only as time passed and the steady rate of the death and the steady rise in the death rate could not be ignored that the public opinion became alive to the truth. For in the fifth week, there were 321 deaths and 345 in the sixth. These figure any ha- figures anyhow spoke for themselves, yet they were still not sensational to prevent the town folk perturbed through the, as they were from persisting the idea of what was happening was a sort of accident, disagreeable enough, but certainly of a temporary order. So they went on strolling about the town as usual, sitting at their tables on the cafe terraces, generally speaking. They did not lack courage, bandied more jokes than lamentations. It made a show of accepting cheerful unpleasantness that obviously could only be passing. In short, they kept up appearances. However, toward the end of the month, about the time of the week of prayer, which will be described later on, there were more serious developments, altering the whole aspect of the town. To begin with, the prefect took measures controlling the traffic and food supply. Gas was rationed and and restrictions were placed on the sale of foodstuffs. Reductions were ordered in the use of electricity. Only necessaries were brought by road or air to Iran. Thus the traffic thinned out progressively until hardly any private cars were on the roads. Luxury shops closed overnight and others began to put up sold-out notices while crowds of buyers stood waiting at their doors. Iran assumed a novel appearance. You saw more pedestrians, and in the slack hours, numbers of people reduced to idleness because of shops, and a good many offices were closed, crowded the streets and cafes. For the present, they were not unemployed, merely on holiday. So it was that on the fine days towards three in the afternoon, Oran brought to mind a city where public rejoicings are in progress. Shops are shut, and the traffic is stopped to give a merry-making populace the freedom of the streets. Naturally, the picture houses benefited by the situation. It made money hand over fist. They had one difficulty, however, to provide a change of program since the circulation of films in the region had been suspended. After a fortnight, the various cinemas were obliged to exchange films and, after a further lapse of time, to show always the same program. In spite of their takings, in spite of this, their takings did not fall off. The cafes, thanks to the big soft accumulated town where there is wine and liquor trade, holds a place of pride were able to equally cater to their patients. And to tell the truth, there was much heavy drinking. One of the cafes and the brilliant idea of putting up the slogan, the best protection against infection is a bottle of good wine, which confirmed an already prevalent opinion that alcohol is a safeguard against infectious disease. Every night towards 2 a.m., quite a number of drunken men, ejected from the cafes, staggered down the streets, vociferating optimism. Yet all these changes, in one sense, so fantastic and remained so precipitously that it wasn't easy to regard them as likely to have any permanence, with the result that went on focusing our attention on our personal feelings. When leaving the hospital two days after the gates were closed, Dr. Ryu met Qatar in the street. The little man was beaming with satisfaction. Ryu congratulated him on his appearance. Yes, Qatar said, I'm feeling very fit. Never fitter in my life. But tell me, doctor, this blasted plague, what about it? Getting to look mighty serious, isn't it? When the doctor nodded, he continued exuberantly. There's no reason for it to stop now. This town's going to be an unholy mess by the look of things. They walked a little way together. Qatar told the story of a grocer in a street who had laid by masses of canned provisions with the idea of selling them later on a big profit. When the ambulance man came to fetch him, he had several dozen cans of meat under his bed. 
He died in the hospital. There's no money in plague, that's sure. Guitard was a mine of stories of this kind, true or false about the epidemic. One of them was about a man with all the symptoms running a high fever who dashed out in the street, flung himself on the first one he met, and embraced her, yelling that he'd got it. Good for him was Guitard's comment. But his next remark seemed to belie his gleeful exclamation. Anyhow, we're all nuts to be before long, unless I'm mistaken. It was on the afternoon of the same day that Grand at last unburdened himself to you. Nothing Madame Ryu's photograph on his desk. Noticing Madame Ryu's photograph on his desk, he looked at the doctor inquiringly. Ryu told him that his wife was under treatment in a sanatorium some distance from town. In one way, Grand said, that's lucky. The doctor agreed that it was lucky in one sense, but he added, the great thing was that his life should recover. Yes, Grand said, I understand. And then for the first time since Ryu had made his acquaintance, he became quite voluble. Though he still had trouble over his words, he succeeded nearly always in finding them. Indeed, it was as if for years he'd been thinking over what he had now said. When in his teens, he had been married to a very young girl, one, poor f- one of a poor family living nearby. It was, in fact, in order to marry that he'd abandoned his studies and taken up his present job. Neither he nor Jean ever stirred from their part in the town. In his coring days, he used to go see her at home, and the family were inclined to make fun of her bashful, silent admirer. Her father was a railroadman. When he was off duty, he spent most of his time seated in a corner beside the window, gazing meditatively at the passers-by, his enormous hands splayed out on his thighs. His wife always was always busy with domestic duties, and when Jean gave her hand. Jean was, a ti- was so tiny that it always made Grand nervous to see her crossing the street. The vehicles bearing down her looked so gigantic. Then one day, before Christmas, they went out for a short walk together and stopped to admire a gaily decorated shop window. After gazing ecstatically at it for some moments, Jean turned to him. Oh, is it lovely? He squeezed her wrist. It was thus that the marriage had come about. The rest of the story, to Grant's thinking, was very simple. The common lot of married couples. You get married, you go on loving a bit longer, you work, and you work so hard that it makes you forget to love. As the head of the office where Grand was employed hadn't kept his promise, Jean too had to work outside. At this point, a little imagination was needed to grasp what Grand was trying to convey. Owing largely to fatigue, he gradually lost his grip of himself and had less and less to say, and failed to keep alive the feeling in his wife that she was loved. An overworked husband, poverty, the gradual loss of hope, and a better future. Silent evenings at home. What chance had any passion of surviving such conditions? Probably Gina suffered. And yet she stayed, of course, one may often suffer a long time without knowing it. Thus years went by. Then one day, she left him. Naturally, she hadn't gone alone. I was very fond of you, but now I'm so tired. I'm not happy to go, but one needn't be happy to make another start. That, more or less, was what she had said in her letter. Grand, too, had suffered, and he, too, might, as Ryu pointed out, have made a fresh start. But no, he'd lost faith. Well, he couldn't stop thinking about her. What he had liked to do was to write her a letter justifying himself. But it's not easy, he told Ryu. I've been thinking it for years. While we loved each other, we didn't need words to make ourselves understood. But people don't love forever. A time came when I should have found the words to keep her with me, only I couldn't. Graham produced from his pocket something that looked like a chuck duster and blew his nose noisily. Then he wiped his mustache. Ryu gazed at him in silence. Forgive me, doctor, Grand said hastily, but how shall I put it? 
I feel you're to be trusted. That's why I can talk to you about these things. And then, you see, I get all worked up. Obviously, Grant's thoughts were leagues away from the plague. That evening, Reed sent a telegram to his wife telling her that the town was closed, that she must go on taking great care of herself, and that she was in his thoughts. One evening when he was leaving the hospital, it was about three weeks after the closing of the gates, Ryu found a young man waiting for him in the street. You remember me, don't you? Ryu believed he did, but he couldn't quite place him. I called on you just before the trouble started, the young man said, for information about li the living conditions in the Arab Quarter. My name is Raymond Rimbert. Ah, oh, yes, of course. Well, you've now the makings of a good story for your paper. Rimbert, who gave the impression of being much less self-assured than when he assumed, than when than he had seemed on the first occasion when they had met, said it was wasn't that he'd come about. He wanted to know if the doctor would kindly give him some help. I must apologize, he continued, but I really don't know a soul here, and the local representative of my paper is a complete dud. Ryu said he had he had to go to the dispensary in the center of town, and just they should walk there together. Their way lay through the narrow streets of the Negro district. Evening was coming on, but the town, once so noisy at this hour, was strangely still. The only sounds were some bugle calls echoing through the air, still golden with the end of daylight. The army, anyhow, was making a show of carrying on as usual. Meanwhile, they walked down a steep little hill, flanked with streets blue, mauve, and saffron yellow walls. Rimbert talked incessantly, as if his nerves were out of hand. He left his wife in Paris, he said. Well, she wasn't actually his wife, but it came to the same thing. The moment the town was put into quarantine, he had sent her a wire. His impression then was this is a stay thing was to was quite temporary, and he and all he tried to do was to get the letter through to her, but the post office officials had vetoed this, and his colleagues of the local press said they could do nothing for him. And a clerk in the prefect's office had laughed in his face. It was only after waiting in line for a couple hours that he had managed to get a telegram accepted. All goes well. Hope to see you soon. But next morning when Hope woke up, it dawned on him that, after all, there was absolutely no knowing how long this business was going to last. So he decided to leave the town at once. Being able, thanks to his professional status, to pull, pull some strings, he had secured an interview with a high official in the prefect's office. He explained to him that his presence in Iran was purely accidental. He had no connection with the town and no reason for staying in it. That being so, he surely was entitled to leave. Even if, once outside, he had to, go undergo, he had to undergo a spell of quarantine. The official told him he quite appreciated the position, but no exceptions could be made. He would, however, see if anything could be done, though he could hold out a little hope for a quick decision, and the authorities were taking a very serious view of the situation. But, confound it, Rimbert exclaimed, I don't belong here. Quite so. Anyhow, let's hope this epidemic will soon be over. Finally, he had to try to console Rimbert by pointing out that, as a journalist, he had an excellent subject to his hand in Iran. Indeed, when one came to think of it, no event, however disagreeable in some ways, but had its bright side. Whereat, Rimbert shrugged his shoulders petulantly and walked out. They had come to the center of the town. It's so damn silly, Doctor, isn't it? The truth is, I wasn't brought in the world to write newspaper articles. But it's quite likely I was brought in the world to live with a woman. That's reasonable isn't enough, isn't it? You replied cautiously that there might be something in what he said. The central boulevards were not so crowded as usual. The few people were hurrying to distant homes. Not a smile was to see on any face. Ryu guessed that this was the result of the latest Ransdok announcement. After 24 hours, our townspeople would begin to hope again. But on the days when they were announced, 
the statistics were too fresh in anybody's memory. The truth from Barry remarked abruptly is that she and I have been together only a short time. We suit each other perfectly. When Ryu said nothing, he continued, I can see I'm boring you. Sorry. All I want to know was whether you couldn't possibly give me a certificate stating that I haven't got this damn disease. It might make things easier, I think. Ryu nodded. A small boy had just run against his leg and fallen. He set him up on his feet again. Walking on, they came to the Plasta Arms, gray with dust. The palms and the fig trees drooped despondently around the Statue of the Republic, which was too was coated with grime and dust. They stopped beside the statue. Ryu stamped his feet in the flagstones to shake off the coat of white dust that had gathered on them. His hat pushed slightly back and his shirt, gaping, shirt collar gaping under a loosely knotted tie, his cheeks ill-shaven. The journalist had the sulky, stubborn look of a young man who feels himself deeply injured. Please don't doubt I understand you, Ryu said, but you must see your argument doesn't hold water. I can't give you a certificate because I don't know whether you have the disease or not. And if I did, how could I certify that between the moment of leaving my consulting room and your arrival in the prefect's office, you wouldn't be infected? And if I did, and even if you did, even if I gave you a certificate, it wouldn't help. Why not? Because there are thousands of people placed as you are in this town, and there can't be any question of allowing them to leave. Even supposing they haven't got the plague, that's not a sufficient reason. Oh, I know it's an absurd situation, but we're all involved in it, and we've got to accept it as it is. But I don't belong here. Unfortunately, from now on, you'll belong here, like everybody else. Rambert raised his voice a little bit. But damn it, doctor, can't you see it's a matter of common human feeling? Or don't you realize what sort of separation means to people who are fond of each other? Ryu was silent for a moment, and then he understood it perfectly. He wished nothing better than that Rimbard should be allowed to return to his wife and that all who loved one another would, and were parted should come together again. Only the law was a law, plague had broken out, and he could only do what had to be done. No, Rimbard said bitterly, you can't understand. You're using the language of reason, not of the heart. You live in a world of abstractions. The doctor glanced up at the Statue of Republic, then said he did not know if he was using the language of reason but you know he was using the language of facts, as everyone could see them, which wasn't necessarily the same thing. The journalist tugged at his tie to straighten it. So, I take it. I can't count on help from you. Very good, but... His tone was challenging. Leave this town, I shall. The doctor repeated that he quite understood, but all that was none of his business. Excuse me, but it is your business, Rambert raised his voice again. I approached you because I've been told you played a large part in drawing up the orders that have been issued. So I thought that in one case, anyhow, you could, make un- you could unmake what you helped make, but you don't care. You never gave a thought to anybody. You didn't take the case of people who were separated into account. Ryu admitted this was true up to a point. He preferred to not to take such cases into account. Ah, I see now, Rimber exclaimed. You'll soon be talking about interests of the general public but public welfare is merely the sum of total private welfares of each of us. The doctor seemed abruptly to come out of a dream. Oh, come, he said. There's that, but there's much more to it than that. It doesn't do to rush to conclusions, you know, but you've no reason to feel angered. I assure you that you find a way out of your quandary. I shall be extremely pleased. Only there there are things that my official position debars me from doing. Rambert tossed his head petulantly. Yes, yes, I was around to show annoyance. 
and I've taken up too much of your time already. Ryu asked him to let him know how he got on with his project and not to bear him a grudge for not having been more amenable. He was sure, he added, that there, that there was some common ground on which they could meet. Rambert looked perplexed. Then, yes, he said after a short silence. I rather think so, too. In spite of myself, and of all of you just been saying, he paused. Still, I can't agree with you. Pulling down his hat over his eyes, he walked quickly away. Ryu saw him enter the hotel where Teru was staying. After a moment, the doctor gave a slight nod, as if approving of some thought had just crossed his mind. Yes, the journalist was right in refusing to be balked of happiness, but he was right in reproaching him. Ryu, with living in a world of abstractions, could that term, abstraction, really apply to these days he spent in the hospital with the, while the plague was battering on the town, raising his death toll to 500 victims a week? Yes, an element of abstraction, of, of, of a divorce of reality, entered in such calamities. Still, when abstraction says to killing you, you've got to get busy with it. And so much for you knew that this wasn't the easiest course. Running the auxiliary hospital, for instance, of which he was in charge. There are now three such hospitals. It was no light, no light task. He had had an anteroom leading into his surgery, installed equipped for dealing with patients on arrival. The floor had been excavated and replaced by a shallow lake of water in sercilic acid, in the center of which a sort of island made of bricks. The patient was carried to the island, rapidly undressed, and his clothes dropped into the disinfectant water. After being washed, dried, and dressed in one of the coarse hospital nightshirts, he was taken to Ryu for examination, then carried to one of the wards. This hospital, a requisition schoolhouse, now contained 500 beds, almost all of which were occupied. After the reception of the patients, which he personally supervised, Ryu injected a serum, lance buboes, checked the statistics once again, and returned for his afternoon consultations. Only when night was setting in did he start on his round of visits, and he never got home till this very late hour. On the previous night, his mother, when handing him a telegram from his wife, had remarked that his hands were shaking. Yes, he said, but it's only a matter of sticking to it, and my nerves will stay down, you'll see. He had a robust constitution, and yet wasn't really tired. Still, his visits, for one thing, were beginning to put a great strain on his endurance. Once the epidemic was diagnosed, the patient had to be evacuated forthwith, then indeed abstraction and a tussle with the family. Who knew they would not see the sick man again until he was dead or cured? Have some pity, doctor. It was Madame Lorette, mother of the chambermaid of Teresa Hotel, who had made the appeal. An unnecessary appeal. Of course he had pity. But what purpose could it serve? He had to telephone, and soon the ambulance would be heard clanging down the street. At first, the neighbors used to open up the windows and watch. Later, they promptly shut them. Then came a second phase of conflict, tears and pleadings, abstraction, and a word. In those fever-hot, nerve-ridden sick rooms, crazy scenes took place. But the issue was always the same. The patient was removed, then Ryu, too, could leave. In the early days, he had merely telephoned, then rushed off to see other patients without waiting for the ambulance. But no sooner was he gone, the family locked and barred their doors, preferring contact with the plague to a parting issue, whose issue they only know too well. There followed objurgations, ob screams, and batterings at the door, action by the police, and later the armed force. The patient was taken by storm. Thus, during the first few weeks, he was compelled to stay with the patient till the ambulance came. Later, when each of his doctor, when each doctor was accompanied by a volunteer police officer, Ryu could hurry away to the next patient. 
but to begin with, every evening was like that evening when he was when he called in for Madame Lorette's daughter. He was shown into a small apartment decorated with a fan and artificial flowers. The mother greeted him with a faltering smile. Oh, I do hope it's not the fever everyone's talking about. Lifting the coverlet and chemise, he gazed in silence at the red blotches on the girl's thighs and stomach, the swollen ganglia. After one glance, the mother broke into shrill, uncontrollable cries of grief. And every, every evening, mothers wailed thus. With a distraught abstraction, as their eyes fell on their fatal stigmata on limbs and bellies, every evening, hands gripped reused arms. There was a rush of useless words, promises, and tears. Every evening, a nearing toxin of the ambulance provoked scenes as vain as every form of grief. We had nothing to look forward to but a long sequence of such scenes, renewed again and again. Yes, plague-like abstraction was monotonous. Perhaps only one factor changed, and that was Ryu himself. Standing at the foot of the Statue of the Republic that evening, he felt it. All he was conscious of was a bleak indifference steadily gaining on him as he gazed the door of the hotel Rambert just entered. After these wearing weeks, after all those nightfalls, when the townsfolk poured in the streets to roam them endlessly, Ryu had learned that he had no longer he need no longer steel himself against pity. One grows out of pity when it's useless. In this feeling that his heart had slowly closed in on itself, the doctor found a solace, his only solace, for the almost unendurable burden of his days. This he knew would make a task easier, and therefore he was glad of it. When he came home at two in the morning, his mother was shocked at the blank look he gave her. She was deploringly precise, the sole alleviation Ryu could then experience. To fight abstraction, you must have something of it in your own makeup. But how could Rambert be expected to grasp that? Abstraction for him was all that stood in the way of his happiness. Indeed, Ryu had to admit the journalist was right in one sense, but he knew too that abstraction sometimes proves itself stronger than happiness, and then, if only then, it has to be taken into account. And this is what was going to happen to Rambert. The doctor was to learn when, much later, Rambert told him more about himself. Thus, he was enabled to follow, and on a different plane, the dreary struggle and a progress between man's happiness and the abstractions of the plague, which constituted the whole life of our town over a long period of time.